Since Clay was in the Psalms, that's why I decided uh, I would look at one of uh, my favorite Psalms and on such short notice, so that's why we're going to look at Psalm 145. And as I said, it's the only Psalm in the Psalter that is entitled of praise. So right away, I got to ask you, have you lost your sense of awe in God? Or I could ask it this way, are you in a season in your life right now where your prayers are more petition than they are praise? See, all of us go through periods in our life where we do lose the awe of God, where the wonder of His glory, where the amazement of His grace no longer captivates us. And we actually don't think very much about Him. Or if we do think about him, we can't remain focused on him because then our mind quickly wanders off to think about something else. See, it does not take long for God to become distant and unfamiliar to us, does it? It really doesn't. So unfamiliar that we don't know how to talk to him, (laughs) right? We don't know the reality of who he is. We're not impacted by it. God can get so unfamiliar and distant that he gets pushed down to the bottom of our priority list. So let me ask you this. When you spend little time in his word, when you don't pray, how distant is God from you right now? When was the last time you prayed for more than two minutes? Has the God of the universe, has the creator of all things, the one who upholds all things by the power of his word, has he become small in your eyes? Has he become insignificant and secondary in your life? Has he become pushed down, as I said, to the bottom of your priority list. See, God can get pushed down so far that the awe of him, it no longer motivates us in the things that we do. It no longer affects the decisions that we make. It no longer affects how we prioritize our time, how we view and treat other people. It no longer shapes the way that we view ourselves. It no longer shapes the way we function at work. It no longer shapes how we raise our children. It no longer shapes how we handle our finances. It no longer drives us to reach out to our neighbors. It no longer causes us to serve other people. See, the awe of God, it is meant to govern and influence every aspect of our lives. But at times it doesn't. And because it doesn't, our lives get off center. We get off kilter and we start spinning out of control. And this affects everything and everyone around us. And this morning, you might have come here already off center, (laughs) already out of whack. And your mind is a million miles away from God right now. 
Some of you, you're thinking about that boy or that girl that you think will make you happy if they would just notice me. Others of you are thinking about the Facebook post that you saw this morning or the Instagram picture or the comment that somebody made or the tweet that you read. Some of you, like me, you're dreaming about the vacation you're about to take, (laughs) right? Others of you, you're thinking about all the things that you have to do this week, and your mind is a million miles away from God. See, all of us come into worship (laughs) already in the middle of a war, whether we realize it or not. It's a war for your heart's allegiance It's a war for your worship. Paul Tripp in his book, Dangerous Colony, says this, In every human heart, there is a glory war being fought between the awe of God and the awe-inspiring things that are around us that God created. Awe of God will capture you or you will be captured by some other created awe. See, all you got to do is just think about your last week, okay? How often did you look to created things to give you what only your creator can? How often did you look to created things to give you life, satisfaction, meaning, and worth? See, all of us have asked and looked to created things to be what they can never be, our satisfier and our Savior. You know why today is set apart from the rest of the week? Do you know why it's called the Lord's Day? Do you know why it's different than every other day of the week. Because God set this day apart to help you and I get the awe of him back. And the reason why I wanted to preach on Psalm 145 is because it's going to help us to do that. And we're going to read the whole thing, so I'm going to have you remain seated while we do it. Because this psalm, It's meant to make us stop, to slow down, to see, to look and to listen all around us of the glory of who God is and the glory of what God does. I will extol you, O my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. His greatness, it's unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, 
slow to anger and abounding, and it's the Hebrew word chesed, steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power and make known to the children of man your mighty deeds, the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you. And you give them their food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and he saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him. But all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. All right, I pray. So we're going to jump right in. You kind of get the primary point of this psalm, don't you? God made us to worship him, God made us to adore him. God made us to find our life in him. God made us to be in awe of him. Not just sometimes, every single day. See, his beauty, according to day, it's so breathtaking. His glory, it is so radiant. His greatness is so great. David says, it's unsearchable. It is infinitely beyond finding out all that we could know about him. God's glory is so infinitely valuable that the riches of who he is and what he does can never be exhausted. Every single day, we are meant to revolve our lives around God. Every single day, we are meant to make him the central focus of our lives where we're meant to find life we're meant to find satisfaction we're meant to find joy in him think of why the tabernacle i mean some you may know this or you may not think of why the tabernacle was located into in the center of israel where all 12 tribes were arranged around the tabernacle, where God's presence dwelt. And what happened in the tabernacle almost on a daily basis, right? Sacrifices. (laughs) Almost every day, animals are being burned and slaughtered. How do you know when when your neighbor's grilling out? (laughs) You smell it, right? And if you're like me, when, you, when, it's, when it's beef and you're smelling the beef, you're like Pavlov's dog. Oh, man. It just whets your appetite. It makes you hungry. So think of this. Think of what Israel's 
understanding of worship involves. It's a feast. Every day, they're smelling somebody sacrificing an animal so they could enter into God's presence and worship him. The problem today is that when we come to the Lord's Day worship, we're already full because we've been snacking on junk food all week and we've lost our appetite for God. So in a very real sense, my job every Sunday is to display the glory of God to you in such a way that the awe of him comes back. See, when we lose the awe of God, the awe of something else takes his place. Because God made us worshiping creatures, when we stop worshiping him, it doesn't mean we stop worshiping. It means we're worshiping something else. When God is no longer at the center of our lives, something else is at the center of our lives. Or I could say it this way. If we aren't living for God, then you only have one alternative. You're living for yourself. When the awe of God is lost, it's quickly replaced by the awe of self. But here's the problem. The awe of self can't carry the weight of being God. And because it can't carry the weight of being God, your life gets off-centered. And this is why it starts spinning out of control. This is why it affects you in such a way that you then affect everything and everyone around you. So what I want to do is I want to expound a little bit on this psalm, and then I want to look at what causes us to lose the awe of God And then how do we get it back? But I do want to make one quick observation about this. Notice, and again, we know David's life, so we know every day is not like this. But notice that David keeps his awe of God. Why? Because he meditates daily on the word of God. And he observes God's ways with God's people. Which means (laughs) David takes the time to read, to reflect, to observe. David takes the time to talk with God. David takes the time to talk with God's people about what God's doing in their lives. See, this is written by King David. A man running a kingdom with a lot of pressure on him. A man very busy. And yet this man slows down. He reflects. He thinks deeply about who God has revealed himself to be in his word. And he prioritizes his time with God 
and he prioritizes his time to have intimate fellowship with God's people. See, look at verse 2. Every day I will bless you and praise you. <laughs> look at verse 5 to see what drives this. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I will meditate. And then look at verse 4 and then verses 6 through 7. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. What is this showing us? The worship of God is not just individual. It's corporate. It's individually done every day by David, but it's also corporately done. Which means it's not just a private, personal relationship with Jesus that you have. It's a corporate one. And this public relationship is passed on. It's shared. It's lived out in the family and in the community. Who God is and what God does, in other words, is passed on. It is told. It is lived out in the family and in the community. Why? So that it. It continues for each successive generation. Verses 11 and 12. Notice the switch from I to they. They. They shall speak of your glory, of the glory of your kingdom, and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. So now, notice, David is connecting the awe of God With God's people. Which means. We need one another. To keep the awe of God. We need each other to point us back to God. We need one another to encourage. Each other. We need to get below the surface and talk about the realities of what God's doing in our life or the realities of the struggles that we have with what God's doing in our lives. I need to know how God is working in your life just like you need to know how he's working in mine. We need to learn to get beyond the small talk and get to the reality of what's going on in our lives, truthfully. We need to take the mask off and be real. Now, one of the reasons why we lose the awe of God is because we are so easily distracted. Maggie Jackson, uh, who's an award-winning author and columnist for the Boston Globe, she wrote a book entitled Distracted, The Erosion of Attention and the Coming Dark Age which is a great book. She argues that one of the problems with technology today is how it's affecting our capacity to think deeply about things. She says, we become glued to gadgetry. All the sound bites, data points, and skipping around are so corrosive to the deep, thoughtful, focused attention that we need at times. 
I mean, think of it. We spend so much time on our devices, on our smartphones, on our iPads, on our computers, where we are exposed to so much information that we can't take it all in. So we may know a lot of things, but we don't know a lot about some things. In her book, she talks about this study that she conducted at the University of Maryland where students were assigned a digital detox for 24 hours. That's it. One day where they could not access their device and get onto social media. And here's what she said. One word I came away with after talking to dozens of students was fear. They were terrified of being alone with themselves. And this was so chilling to me, she says. And then later she goes on to say, it's not just technologies. It's the hurry and the bustle that blurs what's going on in our lives. It's, this is key, it is our inability to see distraction as defined by being pulled to something secondary. We are pulled away from prioritizing God as the main thing in our life towards secondary things that aren't as important. And yet we make them more important than God. In other words, we become so distracted because we're in awe of ourselves. And when we're in awe of ourselves, we miss the awe of God that is around us every single day. We don't take the time to bask in a sunrise or a sunset. We don't take the time to observe the power of God in a storm, the beauty of God in creation. We forget what Psalm 119 says, that creation day and night is pouring forth speech. It's declaring the glory of who God is. We become so busy, we don't see it. Man, I, I wonder if someone who lives in Colorado, I, I wonder if they're affected by the mountains the same way I am when I only get to see them for maybe a week or two. If they live there every day, I wonder if it gets tired. If the mountains aren't as awe-inspiring to them anymore. Now, what struck me as I was studying Psalm 145 is how the focus of David's meditation is on who God is and what God does. But he's very broad. In his description of it, like he describes God as king, his greatness is unsearchable. God is righteous, he's good to all, he's faithful in all his words, he's kind in all of his works. God is the provider, he's the sustainer, he's the satisfier, he's near to all who call on him, he's powerful, he's mighty, he's abundantly good. And what about his, what does he do? He does mighty acts, he does awesome deeds. He establishes and ensures that his kingdom will endure forever. He provides, he satisfies, he sustains, he displays his glory. He upholds those who are falling. He raises up those who are bowed down. He hears our cry, he saves, and he preserves. 
But did you catch verse 8 where he gets very specific? See, what's he doing? He's meditating on Exodus 32 through 34 where God reveals his glory to Moses and reveals the meaning of his name, Yahweh. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He is slow to anger. He abounds in steadfast, loyal love. See, why did this scene capture David's attention more than anything else? Because in the Old Testament, as I said, this one scene, it captures the essence of God's glory like no other. This one scene, it shaped and it molded David's understanding of God more than any other scene. In other words, David stands in awe that God is more merciful than he is just. The greatness of this fact is unsearchable for David. The meaning of God's name cannot be exhausted. It's a treasure chest with infinite riches. This is what fills David's heart with joy. This is what gives David an identity. This is where David understands his worth to God. This is what speaks peace. This is what speaks security to David. Brothers and sisters, when we lose the awe of God... We get it back by focusing on the one thing that makes the meaning of God's name make any sense. By focusing on the one place where God's mercy and his justice meet. And that's at the cross. But I want us to see one very specific aspect of the cross that helps me to get the awe of God back. And it's found in Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. What is the race set before us? Life. How do we run this race? The writer of Hebrews says, by looking to Jesus. The founder and champion of your faith. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Despising the shame. And is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The writer of Hebrews in other words is wanting us to do what David wants us to do in Psalm 145. To fix and focus and stare and reflect on who Jesus is. 
and on what Jesus does. In this passage, it's always stumped me um, because I never understood this phrase, for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame. Why? Because joy and despising don't go together. So how does Jesus despise the shame of the cross? Because at first, I used to think that, it, man, if he despises it, then he intensely hates the shame of it. But it wasn't until I read Ed Welch's book called Shame Interrupted that I discovered that the word for despise, it doesn't mean intense anger. It means to look down upon. It means to be unconcerned about. It means to think little of. So what is the writer of Hebrews saying? Jesus endured the cross and thought its shame a small price to pay for what it would get. Now, when you read the gospel accounts, however, of Jesus' arrest, of his trial, and then of his actual crucifixion, it doesn't appear to be a small thing. It doesn't appear to be a small price to pay. See, when we, <laughs> we experience shame because we know we've done something wrong. Jesus did nothing wrong, and yet he's shamed by everyone his closest friends shamed him, right? For three years, Jesus shared his life with his disciples. And then in the garden, when the soldiers came for him, every single one of them deserted him, left him alone. Judas betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver. Do you know that 30 pieces of silver is the price of a slave? Judas is saying, Jesus, this is what I think of your life. It's worth 30 pieces of silver. What about Peter? Denies him. Disassociates himself from knowing him. And Jesus sees him do it. And he hears him do it. And then the religious leaders, they shamed him. They dishonored him by conducting an illegal trial at night, which is against Jewish law. And then what do they do? Oh, they bring in false witnesses to testify against him. And then what do they do? They mock him. They strike him. They condemn him. And then they spit in his face. And then the civil authorities shamed him. Pontius Pilate shames him by handing an innocent man over to an angry mob. And then what does he do? He washes his hands and says, I'm innocent of this man's blood. But he shames Jesus even more when he commands the soldiers to torture him. But before they torture him, they decide to have a little fun with him. They call in the off-duty soldiers to come and be a part of this. So there's hundreds of men that are gathered around him while they strip him of his clothes. Put purple on him. Twist a crown of 12-inch thorns into his head fall down on their knees, hailing him, Hail, King of the Jews! And then they flog him so severely that his organs could be seen. (sighs) 
And then Jesus is shamed by the world passing by. He was led out on the main road carrying a cross so that all of the people who are coming into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover could see him. And they mock him as well. They hurl insults at him. He was crucified naked for all to see. But none of this compares to the shame he experienced from his father when he turned his back on his own son. See, darkness not only covered the face of the earth, but it's the darkness of God's wrath being poured out on his son, abandoning him. And then lastly, Jesus is still shamed by us. When we consider created things more valuable than him, Jesus endured the cross knowing that those who he would endure it for would constantly and continually think little of him. That we would be distracted by secondary things and that we would make those secondary things more important to us than him. So do you see now why his greatness is beyond searching out? Because his love for you is beyond searching out. Jesus considered the shame of what he went through of little value compared to what he would get by enduring the cross. So if you want to get the awe back, reflect on how Jesus thought the cross of shame was a small price to pay to get you. Amen.